Hello and welcome to Autonomous Cars with Mark Hogue, the number one result on Google for Autonomous Cars podcasts. I'm Mark Hogue, a California licensed attorney, a 2X startup founder, a UCLA Bruin with a background in engineering and an economics degree, and twice a week we'll be discussing the products, tech, law, policy, and societal impacts of autonomous cars as they bring about the greatest step change in humanity since the Industrial Revolution. Hello, good morning, and welcome. Today is Tuesday, the 26th of March, 2019. This is episode 92. A very special episode this because I'm pleased to introduce you to yet another very special guest. Today it's Dr. Justin P. Shore. Justin holds a master's degree and a PhD in civil engineering uh, for transportation from the George Washington University, where he's also an adjunct professor and a postdoc researcher. And he is a collision reconstruction expert with DJS Associates. You can probably see where this is going. Obviously, being a collision reconstruction expert means that Justin has been very heavily involved in all the various high-profile accidents involving, well, semi-autonomous cars like, yes, Tesla, for example. Uh, that said, our idea today was to really just engage in a pretty open-ended, organic conversation about kind of all the autonomous things. The idea was to go for about 30 minutes, as always, but um, I'm pretty thrilled to say that, well, our conversation kind of blew up, and we ended up going for basically an hour. Uh, so I've made the decision to split this episode into two parts, the first of which, of course, will be right now, and the second part of which will air on Friday. But before we dive into this, uh, it is Tuesday, which means we've got to do a quick recap of last week's Friday poll day. So uh, if you didn't get a chance to check it out, or even if you did, just to, uh, just to remind you, the question was, do you think the burgeoning autonomous vehicle revolution could make cities like uh, Detroit and Pittsburgh the next Silicon Valley type mega hubs? in the coming decades. Well, the results are fairly spread across the board, so just head on over to Twitter slash Autonomous Hogue and check them out for yourself. Meanwhile, uh, just a real quick friendly reminder, if you're enjoying this podcast, don't forget, please do leave five stars on iTunes and, of course, continue to share with your friends and colleagues. That is the one way, the only way, that this podcast continues to grow. Also, if you haven't yet seen it, uh, don't forget to check out my ridiculously absurd video review of the Tesla Model 3 with Enhanced Autopilot. You can find it on YouTube just searching for Autonomous Hogue. While you're there, please do subscribe. I think 48 of you have done so, so far. I need 100 to get a custom YouTube URL. And finally, don't forget, please do follow me on all social media at Autonomous Hogue. Speaking of social media, I'm really excited to announce that I'm finally on Reddit as of last night. You can find me at, wait for it, Autonomous Hogue. What a surprise. I'm already subscribed to the subreddit Self-Driving Cars, joining the 44,500 of you already on there. Um, really looking forward to engaging all of you in all sorts of thoughtful discussion going forward. So uh, yeah, I will see you there. Right. Without further more to say about this, hope you're sitting comfortably. The first 30 minutes with Dr. Justin P. Shore, PhD, begins now. 
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Three, two, one. So, Justin, pretty How fun to doing? have you on the show. Uh, I'm glad. For uh, all the folks listening, it's kind of funny. I should give a bit of backstory. Justin and I actually had the uh, pretty entertaining chance to connect a while back. We had some pretty great conversations, and we realized, well, this is weird. We've never done an episode together. So, um, Let's kick it off like this. Justin, why don't you give us uh, your 30-second sound bite on your background and all the awesome stuff you do with uh, accidents. We'd love to hear about it. Well, uh, they are actually collisions. Sorry, not collisions, act- collisions, act- yes. Action God, right? And so <laughs> what I do is I am a collision reconstruction engineer. So when people get into car crashes, that somebody sues somebody else and the lawyers or the insurance company hire our firm to figure out based on the laws of physics, what happened in the crash. We don't necessarily determine fault, but we do uh, look at the physics-based aspects of the crash and try to determine how it happened. Uh, Before I started working there, and this is DJS Associates in Philadelphia, I got my PhD in traffic engineering at George Washington University. Uh, where I worked at the Center for Intelligent Systems Research. Well, as a physics nerd, uh, this excites me a lot. Reconstructing collisions because physics is awesome. Physics is awesome. We we don't get too complicated with the physics. Uh, Well, you don't need to get too complicated, I should say, with the physics, but we, we do use it every day, obviously. For sure. So, obviously, lots of collisions happening in the autonomous world. Um, Where would you like to start? Well, I think a good place is that uh, we just passed the one-year mark for the Uber crash in uh, Tempe, Arizona. So, I think that 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 one, especially because there still seems to be some confusion in your mind as to what exactly uh, occurred there. Um, I think that that would be a good place to start. No, you're right. And I had forgotten. So thanks for reminding me. Uh, just a bit of backstory real quick. My, my, what appears to be a misunderstanding on my part, and Justin was good enough to reach out to give me a heads up on this. My misunderstanding was that it wasn't the issue that the Uber test vehicle, the Volvo XC90, had not detected the uh, pedestrian and her bicycle, but rather had misidentified it as perhaps a floating plastic bag in the wind, which otherwise, or or otherwise not a thing which required slamming on the brakes and the fact that the vehicle's own um, stock emergency braking system had been disabled for purposes of testing the autonomous vehicle kit. But Justin, you're telling me I've got something wrong here. So please do clarify. Now now I feel like you've you've sorted it out a little bit better. Okay. I I think that the issue with this crash is that Regardless of the the wavering that the system did on what uh, what was the was it a pedestrian was it a bicycle was it just some object regardless of that wavering one point three seconds prior to the crash the system knew that a, an emergency maneuver was required 
So if the brakes are applied instantaneously, as is the, the supposed benefit of automated vehicles, then the vehicle would have, uh, would have slowed to a point where the, the co- collision is unlikely to have resulted in a fatality. And the pedestrian likely would have been able to pass all the way across the front of the vehicle since it was a pedestrian, uh, a passenger side impact uh, on the front end there. So the, the crash likely would not have occurred at all had the vehicle simply applied the brakes when it knew the emergency maneuver was required. So I just want to make sure we're perfectly clear on this. You're basically saying had they not, in fact, disabled the standard emergency braking system, then that crash would have been avoided, correct? Correct. Okay, but but um, yeah, that, that's fine. I agree with that. But but um, in the absence of that standard emergency braking system that all Volvo XC90s have stock from the factory, the fact still remains. You know, the issue is why did the new experimental lidar kit that they were testing, right? That issue was in fact an issue with comprehending what was the thing the vehicle was seeing, right? So, and isn't that the issue here is why did the LIDAR software, why did the autonomous software screw up? And that's where the the 1.3 seconds comes from. That is when Uber system knew that an emergency maneuver was required. So, So not only did Uber disable Volvo's automatic emergency braking, but Uber didn't have a system, a, a, you know, a, the same as that on in their software suite, and they had no way of notifying notifying the operator that the emergency maneuver was indeed required. So, the, so Uber's Uber's technology knew that the vehicle needed to take action to avoid a crash. They couldn't stop the vehicle, the technology that is, and they could not alert the operator. Okay, no, I get all that, but the fact is, had had the system properly detected it as a thing which should be avoided, then it would have stopped, right? Well, had it detected it earlier, well, had it detected it earlier, it still wouldn't have stopped. Uber's vehicles are not, they were, at that point, they were not capable of stopping for an emergency maneuver at all. Hmm. Interesting. It's, and okay. they're, they're reliant on that safety driver who, who takes a lot of heat in this uh, in this crash, however, that safety driver, regardless of the fact that she was indeed watching the voice at the time of the crash, that that was in the the data that I got from an FIOA request from uh, Tempe. But the uh, <clears throat> the fact is that she had to monitor the system to some extent while she was driving. That was one of her tasks while she was there. So you know, regardless of what she was looking down for. Fact is, she had to look down at some points, and to not be able to stop or notify the driver. To me, I don't think that that vehicle should have been allowed on the roadway. Okay, so I, I still though, I think it's a pretty nuanced distinction. You're, you're saying it didn't stop because it didn't have the capability to stop, even if it had seen the pedestrian on the bicycle on time. But again, my understanding was not that it didn't have the capability to stop, simply that it elected not to stop because it didn't deem it necessary to stop. I, I, I don't uh, now I maybe maybe we're getting outside of, of my understanding of this, but based on the data that I was provided, it seemed to me that the indication was that Uber, the vehicle was incapable of taking emergency action, huh. that it could control the safety critical functions of the vehicle, 
that's the steering accelerating and the braking under all conditions, except when emergency maneuvers were required, the operator was responsible for taking action. Got it. Okay. So that is a really important thing then to, to realize. And it, but it is kind of nuanced, right? Because it's a very separate issue. The issue is on the one hand, whether it's incapable of doing something or whether it didn't do it because it mischaracterized the situation. Those are very different things. But obviously, you've got the data, you've got the facts. And so I, we have to assume that that is, in fact, a correct assessment, in which case, yeah, that's pretty shocking. It's pretty appalling. And, and I don't think it, it is out of, um, out of the nature of, of Uber as, as kind of an organization. Um, that, that whistleblower email that came out after the crash, mm-hmm. uh, that guy warned Uber for, you know, about almost this exact scenario uh, prior to when this happened and had suggested putting two people in the vehicles like they used to do because he didn't think that one safety operator was sufficient to, to be able to respond to emergencies. Yeah, so, so this kind of reminds me, just sort of as an aside, unless you want to segue to this directly, um, I read a proposal the other day, you may have heard about this as well, um, that rather than having a five level, the five levels of autonomy broken down by the SAE, to rather have two levels. Essentially, it's a binary system, right? So you've got what's essentially level two plus, so just ADAS systems generally, which obviously by definition require full human attention at all times in all conditions. And then you've got what's essentially level four plus, uh, which is, well, you know, driverless essentially. Um, well, that's- what, what do you think? Is that a- mm-hmm. I agree 100% with that. In- Actually, when, when I, we were discussing prior to, to this recording, uh, I told you that I had uh, begun to develop what I was calling the required human and the required computer response uh, for you know, reconstructing these collisions. And one of the first things that I suggest in, in my required computer response is reducing the total numbers of, le- uh, of levels to three, full human control, enhanced human control, and full computer control. Mm-hmm. And so I am I am all for that. I don't I think that there's there's a lot of ambiguity in in the level two distinction uh, where kind of you're 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 putting the vehicle out there and you're having what I view as a level four failure in this in this Uber crash and you're blaming it on the level two human monitor. Well, that's an interesting. Yeah. OK, fair enough. But on the other hand, by definition, if indeed there is a necessary human monitor, um, well, then it's clearly not a level four vehicle. I mean, they're testing level four capabilities, but it's clearly a level two system. And and see, that's and and Uber, I think, with their language prior to to deploying the test the the test vehicles, uh, especially when they got denied by the state of California, I think that that they they were very unclear, let's say, about exactly the capabilities of this sort of vehicle. Luckily, the state of California realized that and did not let them deploy. However, uh, obviously, Arizona did. And it's, it's actually kind of interesting. They, they, what do they say to the state of California? I have it right here. They, they call them like technologically deficient or they say all these other cities uh, have made it clear that they are pro-technology. Our hope is that California uh, will take a similar view. <laughs> interesting. Huh. That, so, but, but, you know, it's an interesting point, though. I mean, you're right. It, it is confusing because uh, a very kind listener 
uh, who has requested to be anonymous, reached out to me by Twitter direct message and pointed out that I've said a thing which is a bit, well, wrong, if indeed I meant it the way it sounded, but I have a defense for that, uh, which is simply, I, I've said a few times that I've, 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 I sort of imagine that level five vehicles will start to kind of trickle in on our roadways gradually. So first of all, on in the carpool lanes, maybe later on on larger boulevards and eventually on all streets. And he made the really good point that that is by definition then not level five, it's level four, because level five means obviously driverless everywhere. And I realized that that, it, that is a confusing thing to, to get right. In my mind, I guess the way I meant it, though, was these would be level five cars in the sense they could be driven everywhere, but that they were elected to be driven only in certain areas. And I think, I think by making that distinction that, that you, you cover yourself, because that, that to me, uh, if it's capable of driving anywhere, Bingo, that, the capability, yep. it's, a, it's a level five vehicle. And that's, that's what I was thinking as well. But but the, I think the point of this is, though, is that for him to interpret me saying what I've said in the past as misstating something, that I think speaks pretty well to your point that this is pretty confusing stuff, especially since I've gone on the record rather... Are you there? Yep, yep. Sorry, I, I thought I lost you. Uh, yeah, I've been I've gone on the record vocally lately about, you know, my dis... My, my disapproval of obviously Tesla's language for being fully, what is it, fully self-driving capable. And that's just I think, absurd. I, no, no, I, I, I think that's absurd as well. And just to use the, I mean, going to the, the other level, saying autopilot, you know, using a near ho- homonym is it, it shouldn't be in the lexicon. Like you shouldn't be calling a system autopilot. Uh, it sounds very much oh, so like. You're, so you're against even autopilot. I, I don't think that that's an appropriate – I don't think that hmm. that what that system is is characterized correctly by what we traditionally think of when we hear the word autopilot. I also think it's too similar to the word autonomous, uh, which, you know, has has become pretty established as that's a, that's a driverless car. If you're autonomous, that, that seems to be what even the layperson thinks when they hear that. And I, I, that's that's supported by uh, AAA data, which I, I think showed 60 or 70 percent of people thought that a car that had autopilot could drive itself. That, if that's accurate, uh, that's yeah, that's pretty appalling and pretty shocking. And and I, I, I do believe that 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 is. Maybe it could be as low as 40 percent, but let's say it's 40 percent still. That's 40% of people that think autopilot's capable of driving uh, driving them without any input from them. So look, here's the thing, though. Um, no question, this is a very interim state of the technology, because of course it is. Um, obviously, the end game is indisputably a better, safer future, full stop. Um, also indisputable, though, despite some of the several accidents, horrific, tragic accidents that have obviously occurred, there have been many other situations where tragic failure, catastrophic failure has not occurred because of things like autopilot, right? So there was the there were the several instances, one in particular here in California, the guy fell asleep at the wheel of his Tesla, which as an aside, for some reason never disengaged. And it drove along long enough, CHP officers eventually pulled in front of him and got the car to pull over on its own. I mean, this should have been a death for the driver, for other cars on the road. But the, for autopilot, he would be dead. Well, but for autopilot, are you certain that he would have fallen asleep? 
is the question because you know, yeah, when you have falling asleep at the wheel, you know this better than I do. I, I would imagine, right? People fall asleep at the wheel all the time. Always have done. I I don't know that that we should use the all the time because I I, I don't think that that it's as common maybe as, as people think it is. That's possible, I, is it not? I I we we I'll tell you that that you know this is anecdotal, but we do not get a tremendous amount of cases where we see people falling asleep. You know, that could be because if somebody falls asleep there, there isn't uh, much of a lawsuit potentially. But the, the fact remains that these systems are designed to allow you to disengage from the task of drive. If the system is designed to allow you to do that, the system is, is inherently distracting. It's a, it's a cognitive distraction to you. So when you're trying to evaluate safety, it gets it gets really tricky. Um, the the system itself is a distraction. So system with the alert driver is that safer than than you know the system being in there? Well, right now, absolutely. In the future, potentially not. But I, I think that there's a lot to prove there. So obviously I agree with that last statement. There's a lot to prove and there is a long ways to go for sure. Um, two quick counterpoints, one anecdotal, one just the first result I'm getting Googling it right now. So apparently there's a 2014 AAA Traffic Safety Foundation study. 37% of drivers reported having fallen asleep behind the wheel at some point in their lives. Personally, again, just speaking anecdotally, especially when I was living, living down in Southern California, I was averaging something like 20,000 miles a year. Uh, and I was frequently doing the drive between LA and San Francisco. That's about 400 miles each way. Um, I've got a nearly perfect track record, even as, even with respect to speeding tickets. Uh, I think I've had about two or three in my life and they were trivial ones at that. Um, even I, and I, and I say this just to make the point that I'm, I've always been a very responsible driver. My dad used to race competitively. So he trained me with this sort of very responsible sense of driving, you know, uh, even, with that said, there have definitely been a few times where, and it was my fault, you know, I'd be driving too long, too late, beyond my own capability, and there were times where I damn nearly fell asleep. And it was very, very scary, and that's why I remember it. So I'm not questioning that you're, you make a really good point, that perhaps in the absence of autopilot, one might be more careful about being in that situation to begin with. That's probably true. But to the extent that those who are in that situation may have been saved because of autopilot that's certainly worthy of mention no i i i agree that it anything that that increases safety on the roadway it is obviously a positive i just i am not i am not sure that there's there's enough data and that the uh, all of the 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 endogenous uh, factors are the same where you know you you have um the a very specific demographic of person that is buying Teslas and using them. Is that demographic more likely to fall asleep than another demographic? Actually, probably, I, I mean, you know, if, if you're That's going just, I, maybe not, maybe yes. I'm, I'm not sure you have a bunch of, you know, well, well off executive types that, that are buying these vehicles you know, maybe they're working long hours and they're they're more tired and they're more apt to fall asleep. Maybe they're they're more risk taking. And that's why they went out and got a Tesla because they want to test the new technology. I think that there's there's a lot. There's a lot of factors that really confound the, the discussion. 
I, I, I would agree with that. And, and certainly, you know, I often like to look to aviation just for certain comparisons here and there. I mean, I feel like I'm always learning more and more about the history of autopilots in aviation. Um, it turns out that the earliest thing, which could be even marginally considered some sort of an autopilot thing, occurred only, it was developed just nine years after the Wright brothers' first flight. I mean, to call it autopilot is obviously a stretch by every metric, but it was a sort of semi-autonomous plane leveling system, right? Um, I mean, it just kind of makes one wonder, were people more careless when they were testing these early <laughs> these early uh, autopilot systems and aircraft? I would assume not because the risk of death is 100% if it fails, where I guess maybe people are a bit more cavalier when it comes to cars. Maybe that's the, that's the idea. Not to mention pilots are inherently more responsible than most drivers outside of Germany. No, I, I, and, and that's the, the, with aviation is interesting because on one hand you have the, the binary die or don't die situation where a crash is almost certainly going to result in your death. Mm -hmm. However, you also have zero conflicts other than, right. you know, you messing up the entire time that you're there. So that the danger on the roadways is not, really you as a, as a vehicle operator, it's, it's everybody else, right? True. True. So, and it really, it, it's a, it's a difficult debate to have because the, the premise is always going to shift. There, there's, you're never going to, you're not going to be able to get a set of data that, that is a one-to-one -one comparison between um, these autopilot, uh, between people that are operating Teslas right now and people that aren't operating Teslas, let's say. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, and that, that holds true for, for the testing that's going on in places like California and Arizona right now, because the, the way that those tests are conducted at low speeds in the same geofenced regions, well, that's a lot less, uh, you know, laden with conflicts than if you're you're out there in the wild west on on uh, random roadways on back roads in rural areas or or in big cities like New York. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So I mean, it, it's really, from a safety standpoint, it's it's very difficult. I can tell you that just based off the um, the California accident reports, and to tell you the truth, it's ridiculous that that California is the only state they at least they do it right but the fact that I can't find all the the automated vehicle crashes in Arizona is, is kind of uh it seems a little ridiculous to me but just looking at those California reports along with the dis, along with the disengagement reports that they require uh there's one crash every uh 49,000 miles for Waymo 9,000 miles for GM 4,500 miles for Zooks in that Uber uh, email, the whistleblower said one crash every 1,500 miles. Mm -hmm. And you're looking at one crash nearly every 500,000 miles for human-driven vehicles right now. So that, yeah, I mean, when you put it that way, those numbers, yeah, those certainly don't sound very good. I, I, I almost wonder whether we're seeing a higher crash rate than one might expect, or maybe this is exactly what one might expect. Um, simply because due to the nature of testing by definition, you know, you're more likely to be in a situation which could cause something to go all wrong. I mean, can't we, can't we liken this sort of, this is going to be a really weird analogy, but can't we almost liken this testing of autonomous vehicles on roads in a weird sort of way to clinical medical trials? 
here's yes. what, I mean, right? Okay, you see where I'm going with this, right? I mean, I absolutely. Mm-hmm. And um, and I know I I think that that first of all, let me say that not all of the crashes are obviously going to be the fault of the autonomous vehicle in the numbers I just cited. But then again, you know, when you have two humans, one is going to be likely at fault, and the other is going to be likely not at fault. So. You know, it, it's a different, again, you, you have a difficult comparison that you're trying to make there. But with the, with the medical testing, I think that that's the perfect parallel because that, that brings up a whole sort of, uh, you know, all sorts of ethical questions I can remember from bioethics in college. You know, that is a vaccine that's tested in Africa, if the fact that, that it was tested on humans and it was wrong, does that mean that people shouldn't use the vaccine? And, you know, are we in that sort of a, a stage right now where, where that's actually what's occurring here in America? Yeah. On the other hand, I guess it's a bit different in the sense that one could argue that testing autonomous cars on public roads is different to testing in a clinical trial some new vaccine in the sense that obviously you're potentially endangering other folks on the road with technology that fails, whereas in a clinical trial, the only people potentially at risk are those who have volunteered for the trial. So, right. So no one else volunteered to be run over by a, by a Waymo van. Right. No, that's, that's actually, that's, that's a perfect point because that, that's a point that I I make, uh, you know, that it's, it's a risk to everybody else that I'm concerned with, not a risk to the people that are testing. And uh, thank you for for bringing that up because that's actually perfect. Well, it sort of puts my own foot in my own mouth though, because where I was hoping to go with that analogy and that I just completely reversed it (laughs) myself uh, is that, you know, again, it comes down to, is the end game worth any potential risks? I mean, and that's sort of one of the things I keep coming back to, at least in my own, in my own head, right, is that we, we, we kind of need to get to that end game as quickly as possible. And, and that's the question. What, what is the end game? That, that is what I wonder. Huh. Is, is the same thing. What is the, is, is, the, is the purpose of this increased safety? Is it to get everywhere faster? Is it to improve environmental quality? Is it to provide transportation to the transportation disadvantaged? Some of these goals are contrary to one another. And I'm just, I'm not sure what the actual, what the the whole macro level goal of the the autonomous vehicle really is at this point. So, I I mean, I've always just said, first of all, it's got to be safety. First of all, it's safety. I think everything else should be probably secondary. Why not limit every passenger vehicle that's manufactured right now under human control to only going 50 miles an hour? Or oh, slower? no. Now you sound like Volvo. <laughs> <laughs> but that's, that, that becomes the question. If so, that's really the goal, I then, mean, then I think there's other ways to go about I, that. I, mean, I have a few easy counter arguments to that, though. Go ahead. Okay. I mean, in no particular order, uh, first, I don't mean to sound like Clarkson here, but speed doesn't kill you. It's coming to a stop very quickly that does. That's tongue in cheek. A more serious point is, I mean, if you look at folks in Germany, per capita, or I should say per 100,000 cars or whatever the metric is, lethal accidents in, on German freeways is way lower than American freeways, despite the far higher average speeds. Yes, to everybody listening, I know Germany doesn't have de-restricted stretches of Autobahn everywhere, but even the bits that aren't de-restricted are still faster than American freeways. And then you do have the bits that are de-restricted, and those are quite fast indeed. So the issue comes down to driver training. It's not the speed; it's it's the lack of training. Um, Volvo limited. I think it's both. 
because I, I agree with you that that the driver training is is a huge part of this. That, huge. That yeah. the, the barrier to entry for getting a license is way unbelievable. Too easy. Yeah. It's it's way it's too stupid. Easy. Yeah, well, that's because in America we treat driving as a as a let's see as a right, and in Germany and elsewhere they treat it more as a privilege. Um, and I get that. I get that. That's a difference. Um, but but look, another counterpoint I have to give is so so again going back to the drive between say LA and San Francisco, you've got, I don't know if you've done that before, it's Highway 5. It is literally mind-numbingly boring. And it's posted 70 miles an hour. There's, just, there's three big problems with that. Number one, and studies have shown this, that when you're doing three or four hours on a perfectly straight highway, which is flat, and there's no geography, including and especially at nighttime, but even during the day, you will lose concentration and you will crash. Number two, 70 miles per hour is just it is, it is too slow. And everyone goes 80, 85 comfortably because that is the natural speed to drive. It just is, at least with modern cars. It's very easy to cruise at 80 to 85. Having driven in Germany, you don't really need in a modern car, there's not really a shift in concentration, at least in a modern car with modern suspension and so on. There isn't really a concentration change until you start exceeding 95 and 100. Then things start to get tricky exponentially so. 